absolutely. It depends on the uh, COR of the flagstick, so the Coefficient Restitution flagstick. In U.S. Opens, I'll take it out, and uh, every other tour event, when it's uh, fiberglass, I'll leave it in and bounce that ball against the flagstick if I need to. Welcome back, podcast patrons, to another episode of Leave the Pin Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Dan. We got Kobe Wallets on today. Kobe's the Director of Player Development at the Golf Academy at Persimmon Ridge Golf Course in Kentucky. Colby, what's going on? Not much, Dan. Thanks so much for having me today. Oh, without a doubt, man. Without a doubt. How uh, how's Kentucky dealing with all this? Yeah, you know, it's uh, we're fortunate right now. We're we're still golf courses are open. Um, we've done a pretty good job, I guess, of flattening the curve, as they call it. It seems to be a, a pretty hot button uh, phrase right now. Uh, so it seems like we've done a pretty good job of it. But for me, dude, I mean. It's life as usual. I've got a three-month-old, so he keeps me busy, and then I'm still working because golf courses are still open. So uh, I don't, I don't quite see the hit as much as um, probably most of the listeners in the majority of the country. So I've been, I've been fortunate with it, but um, we're we're dealing with it quite well. And I'll tell you what, dude, golf has been crazy busy out here because it's one of the few things you can get outside and do right now. Well, I I can imagine. First off, congratulations on the on being a new dad. Yeah, thank you. That that's awesome. Um, yeah, it's you know everybody around the country is kind of jonesing to play. You guys, you know, I I I'd say I'm beyond jealous. You know, all my courses are closed. Everything's closed in PA. You guys are up and running at the Golf Academy. Um, give give us a little bit of an insight as to what it is. I mean, you guys are literally a a tour level, complete teaching training facility so give give the listeners an idea of what the golf academy is and then i'd like to go into a, a little bit of how you guys are modifying during this and you know this this time of shutdown yeah man for sure um so you know we started out this is year six for us myself and and cory kaufman another instructor started it uh together i guess six years ago now and our goal from day one was whenever someone came to us no matter what their age was or what their ability level was we we wanted to have something for them um and so that started with us too and then it's it's grown to where we have uh four total instructors now just at our facility in louisville uh as well as a as a lady named betty baird krieger who was formerly a number one junior player in the in the country um but she does all of our college advising and a lot of our mental game stuff um, so we've, we've become a academy that works with everyone from as young as three years old, all the way up to as old as you can be and still swing a golf club. Um, and every level from beginners to, um, we actually have a guy that, that we work with that's won an event on the corn Ferry tour this year. So, um, every level and every age, that's for sure. So, I mean, that's, that's such a wide range of not only ages, but skill and ability levels. What's what's an average day like for you? <laughs> uh, there is no average day. Uh, you know, <laughs> makes sense. I, yeah, um, and you know, I, I love work. I love what I do. I don't. I don't know how people can work with the same type of golfer all day, every day. I mean, all the power in the world to them. For me, in my personality, that just doesn't work. I like being on my toes and having to think real quick. So to have a four-year-old for a half hour and then to work with someone that's trying to break 70 or, or um, play D one college golf for another hour or two. And then to work with someone that's trying to break 90 for the first time or 80 for the first time. Um, I just, I really enjoy the, 
the variety of it. And I, I really enjoy just helping people that have a real drive to get better and, you know, are honest about that with, with they really do want to get better and they're willing to put the work in to do it. All right. So, so walk me through, let's say, I, I want to give you a few examples because this is kind of blowing my mind a little bit that you've got, you know, literally someone from, from three to, to 93, right? That's not really an exaggeration. Correct. Okay. So I come in, I am a, you know, a 41 year old male. I've been playing for, you know, 20 plus years, single digit handicap. Um, and I've got a, you know, I'm a, a very quirky swing. I've got a very flat swing. I'm not tall. So I generate all my power horizontally, right? Instead of vertically, I don't have the room to go vertically. I've used that swing for 20 plus years. I know where the ball's going. You know, I know I make great contact. I'm, I'm, I'm real good around the greens. You know, I come in and I meet you and I say, Hey, you know, like I, I want to get better. You know, I mean, Time is not an option. I'll give you anything that you need from me. What's that initial meeting like between between you and I? So first thing is, how good do you want to get? I, you know, I, I literally, like, let's say I come in and I'm like, dude, okay, so let me give you an example. Before I had kids, I was a legit scratch golfer. You know, I, I, I went, it, look, I live in Northeast PA, right? So my golf season's like four months long. Three of those months are actually decent weather conditions when i was scratch i was literally going two three months at a time where i would not shoot over 75 regardless of the course so a handicap that traveled right nowadays i shoot 75 and like i'm on a high for a month <laughs> yeah so you want to get back to back to the guy that doesn't shoot over 75 in in the season correct is that what that what i'm hearing I would love that, dude. <laughs> yeah. So uh, first thing I would do, honestly, is I would take you out on the golf course. And um, what I like to do with my adults is I do them all in groups, really, um, because I want to get you, especially in front of people you don't know, where you're actually a little bit nervous. Um, because most golfers, when they start playing at a level they're not used to playing at, tend to get nervous, as you you very well know. So Without I want to put doubt. you in that situation, right? I want to see... What do you do when, when you do get nervous? What do you do when you're playing great? What do you do when you're not playing great? And I want to actually take you on the golf course, watch you play uh, usually at least nine holes and maybe even 18 and, and see what is it that you struggle with? Where are the biggest – I always look for where are the biggest opportunities for us to make the most significant impact on your game right away? You know, So, for instance, if, if I see you out there and you're getting the ball near the green in regulation on every hole, but you're chipping it to 30 feet, and you're someone that's a single digit handicap, well, I don't care who you are, you're not going to make that many 30 footers. So to me, the biggest part or the biggest impact I can have on you is let's learn how to chip it closer. Now, whether that's because you don't understand how to hit different shots, you, you don't have the right equipment, you don't understand how different lies affect it, you don't understand what side of the green to miss it on, so you're not picking appropriate targets and you're leaving yourself impossible up and downs because you're short-siding yourself. You know, let's figure out what is it for you that's our biggest opportunity to help you get to your goal. Now, you know, talking to me, someone that, you know, I, I would say is deeply involved in the golf, like that makes perfect sense, right? That That is, you know, crystal clear to me. I went down, you know, just a personal story. I went down a rabbit hole in golf trying to chase distance. You know, once I started getting better and then started playing with the better players, you know, at, at my course and other courses and then started playing local am stuff, you know, nothing like state level stuff, but just local am stuff to kind of feel a little bit of that pressure that you talked about. 
I went down this rabbit hole of, wow, I'm playing with guys that legit hit it 285, 290 now. I need to hit it 285, 290 in order to compete. And I lost sight of the fact that I was a great chipper, a great putter, great around the greens, you know, and these other guys had that fault. And I went away from practicing that and trying to increase this distance. And then my game literally fell apart for, you know, I'd say a good year, year and a half until my one buddy said to me, he said, what are you doing? I was like, dude, like I'm trying to put it out there two set, and I'm short off the tee, you know, like, you know, if I hit it 245, 250, like I've piped it. The conditions are perfect, you know, but like you said, let's say a long par four, let's say the par four is like, you know, 410, 415, 425. Well, if I'm not on the green, I'm very close and I've got enough confidence and I know how to play different shots around the green that, you know, 75% of the time, I'm really confident getting up and down. And at worst, maybe having a tap in bogan, and that's not going to make me self-destruct. But when I went after this distance and, you know, swinging out of my shoes and, you know, tempo and rhythm is off, it's like my head exploded. I turned into a 50 handicap that had no (laughs) idea what he was doing and has never played before. What what do you what would you do with with someone like that that you notice like, you know, dude, you you have such a tempo swing. Why are you trying to murder the ball? Sure. Yeah, dude, we get this all the time. Um, and, you know, especially with adults and especially with adult males. But that's why the first question I ask is, how good do you want to get? Because if you're someone that comes to me, and I don't care how old you are, but you say, hey, I want to play at an elite level. Like, a, I want to play and be a, one of the top amateurs in the country. I want to play professionally, something like that. Well, distance then becomes something that you need a little bit more of, right? Sure. You can get away with not hitting at 320, but you can't get away with hitting at 250 and compete at that level. You just can't do it anymore. Um, but for the average player, they're not looking to do that, right? So one game I do, because everyone always says the two things, I, if I could just hit the ball further and be more consistent, right? Those are the two things I get over and over and over again. And so what I'll do when I take people on the golf course, especially someone that says I want to hit it further, um, there's two, two different games I play. Number one is called Perfect Drive, where – after your tee shot, you literally pick your ball up and place it in the middle of the fairway at the 100-yard marker, and then you play in from there. Let's see what you shoot. So I just let you hit the – you know, let's take your 420-yard uh, par four. I literally just gave you a 320-yard tee shot down the middle of the fairway. Let's see what you what you shoot. Is it a short game issue, or does that extra distance actually help? And I would say 99% of the time, uh, the scores are very similar to what they normally shoot from their own tee shots. And then the second game I play, which I love, is – I will try, I'm a decent player. I will try to hit my tee shot wherever you hit your tee shot to. So if you get up and you hit this little heel wipey cut into the trees on the right that goes 220 yards, I'm going to grab my driver and try to smack this little cut out there next to your ball in the trees. And then from there, I'm going to play my own game. And at the end of the round, I'm going to literally say to you, is there a shot that I hit off the tee that you couldn't hit? And the answer is obviously no, because I hit, tried to hit the same shot you hit. And then we look at the scores and here I am shooting something in the high 30s, and here you are shooting something around 45, 46, 47. The difference is in a tee shot. Obviously, we're hitting it to the same spot, right? So that, those are just a couple things I do to help. The, the biggest hurdle with that situation is getting someone to realize that that extra distance isn't actually going to help them achieve their goals. So that's my job is to figure out how do I make you realize that? Because if I don't and I just tell you, 
you don't need to hit it 275. You're fine the way you are. You're going to be like, oh, okay. But then you're going to go back to chasing 275 again. So I have to actually convince you where deep down you say, you know what? I, I hit it just fine off the tee. I am good enough right now to, to shoot the scores I want to shoot. Let's figure out what I need to do to get there. How difficult is that to convince, you know, let's just use a, a typical adult male because they're the ones with the biggest ego. They're the ones that tell you, yeah, man, I bomb at 280 off the tee. You, <laughs> you, you know, you put them on a track, man, it's, it's 238, um, you know, downhill, downwind, and you've been in a drought for a month and a half. How right. difficult is that to convince, you know, a guy or, or anyone that wants to be an elite player of their shortcomings? Um, it's, it's a lot easier when you, when I, I feel like when I go out and play with them and when they see me do something, they can pick it out, but they have a hard time finding it within themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when they see course. me do it, they're like, oh yeah, you, you know, you do this poorly. Well, I'm like, well, I'm doing the same thing you do. So how do you think you do? You know, um, that's, but yeah, that's definitely the hardest thing is to actually, especially when someone comes and they think their problem is one thing, you know, a lot of times they think it's swing technique when they think if they just fix their golf swing, it's obvious everything's going to magically turn into 69s and 70s and 71s. Right. Uh, so that's a hard thing. And I, one thing I've learned over the past couple of years, the more I play with, with players and the more I open up to them about what I'm actually thinking and how shots go. Cause you know, one thing most amateurs think is good players hit the ball solid every time, right? They have to. Because they, they see a ball flight that they don't usually hit. So it's got to be in the middle of the club face. And I, I'll go through around and tell players, listen, I hit that one off the toe. I hit that one thin. That one only went, you know, that one only went 220 off the tee. And I normally hit this thing, this club, 240. You know, so I'm not hitting it perfect. But what I am doing is I'm controlling where it goes so that I'm not making big numbers. I'm not hitting it out of bounds. I'm not hitting it in hazards. I'm not short-siding myself. I'm just putting myself in position to make pars and at worst case, bogey. So it's a great point because the biggest misconception amongst the pros is that they go around for 18 holes for, you know, 65 to 70 strokes and everything's perfect. And I remember an interview after Tom Kite won the 92 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. You know, he's kind of one of those guys like Sergio and Phil before they won, you know, best player to never won a major. And they asked him afterwards, um, they said, you know, man, they're like flawless ball striking. You win by two <laughs> over Jeff Sluman, you know, how, how did you hit it so well? And he kind of looked in the camera, like with this quizzical look. And he said, you know, I hit four perfect shots out there. And, and the, the interviewer was like dumbfounded and just stumped and, and paused for like a good five seconds. And, and Tom Kite looked over and says, you don't, you don't believe me. He says, well, you, you just won the U.S. Open by two strokes at Pebble. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, and I hit four good shots. And he went into, you know, those four good shots. And the guy was like, what What about the, the shot into 17? He's like, nope, pulled it. He's like, well, what about the drive on 18? He's like, nope, I hit it five yards right of where I wanted. And, and you're so right. But their ability to miss in the correct spots really is what separates them from what, you know, the, the normal amateur does when they play golf. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, commentators on TV don't help the average golfer out with that. And I, I'm <laughs> not, not at all. nothing against them. I mean, they have probably one of the hardest jobs, right? Cause there's a lot of empty space to fill in a golf tournament. And I mean, I don't, I don't know what you can say, but 
they 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 don't do us any justice because they they only show the best shots, right? So here's a good story for you. Um, I don't know if you remember when Justin Thomas shot 63, I think it was, and tied Johnny Miller's record in the U.S. Open one day. Oh, I think it was a Friday three, round. Yeah, the three wood with the pink pants. Come on. Yeah, yeah, three wood to a to a pin tucked left with hazard short and left, right? <laughs> and did you did you happen to hear his interview after that round? Um, I don't recall it off the top of my head. Okay. So I have to use I use this example all the time when we talk about target selection with players. So they asked him about that. Man, what a great three would you just stuffed in there and made eagle right on on eighteen to shoot sixty three, and he said that wasn't even close to where I was aiming. He said I was trying to hit a cut into the front right bunker. He said I pulled the crap out of it, and it just happened to you know, the shot he hit was the worst possible shot he could hit. But he aimed in a place so that if he hit that shot, it wouldn't be in the hazard. So he's trying to hit this cut, this probably 30, 40-yard cut, into a front right bunker and just hits a dead pole and happens to hit it to, what, 8, 10 feet? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because going back to the announcers as well, the announcers will applaud that shot. You know, and they'll sure. tell you, you know, they will tell you that JT, you know, is one of the only guys in the field who's playing so well that can even think about making that type of shot. <laughs> and, and the perception is not the reality, right? The reality, like you said, is no, dude. Like, are you kidding me? Who in their right mind would go for that shot? Like, I, I would make it on tour if I did that every week, you know? For but sure. These announcers, you know, and one of the things, too, with these announcers being the old pros, that's that's the mindset, right? It's always like, well, when a guy's washed up and he can't play anymore, he doesn't want to play anymore, let's put him in the announce booth. Uh, we've had some guys this year that have been in the announce booth that have not been so great. But I think one of the disservices they do to the average golfer out there is they see it like the pros see it. They don't see it in terms of, you know, the 8 million people that are watching. They see it from the pros' mindset, from the pros' viewpoint. So, of course, he was trying to take a wedge 15 feet over the pin and spin it back. You tell that to an amateur, and he's like, okay, man, you could put a gun to my head in a thousand shots, and I'm never making that. Yeah, you bring up a great point. I never thought about it that way, but you're you're 100% right because, you know, what I what I watch when I watch tour events is completely different than what the average golfer watches, right? You know, I'm I'm big on, you know, course management and mental game and stuff like that. So so that's kind of body language. Those are the things that I'm paying attention to. Um, you know, strategically like you just said, maybe there's a backstop behind the hole, especially like the Masters is awesome because you know every hole, you see it every year, you know every pin placement you know what hills these guys are using to help funnel the ball to the hole. So you know where they're trying to hit it to, right? Where the average golfer has no clue about that. Yeah, so I mean, a, the that's average, a great point. Right. The average golfer says, okay, big 20,000 square foot green. I got to put the ball up there. Right. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. They're not looking at where the hole's cut. They're not looking to play away from the pin. You know, like, um, you know, perfect example, take, uh, take 17 at Augusta, Sunday hole location, right? Pin tuck top left. You know, no one is going right at that pin. Everyone plays it off the ridge to the right. But mm-hmm. if someone mishits it and pulls it a little bit, let's say, and the conditions are soft, let's say the sub air didn't kick on, right? The conditions are a little <laughs> bit soft and it stops between the fringe and the pin there, the announcers are going to go, that might have been the greatest shot to ever been hit on 17. 
And meanwhile, the dude up on the tee is like, thank God I got away with that because I missed my mark by, you know, 50 feet. Right. Yeah, exactly. The shots that they say are incredible are the, the misses. And the shots where these guys are hitting it to where they're aiming, they're like, ah, he just, you know, hit it out there to 15, 20 feet. No big deal. <laughs> right. And it's That's 20 <laughs> You know, you, you mentioned that you look for different things on the course. And, and I know, like, if I ever bring friends out to golf tournaments and stuff like that, you know, I can see it from their perspective. But I'm also trying to get them in the mindset of like, okay, well, look, he's trying to hit it to that spot. And, and, and buddies will be like, why would he be trying to put it in the bunker? I'm like, because it's the easiest miss and it's the easiest up and down. And if he puts it anywhere near the pin, you know, it's rolling 70 feet off and he's got like a triple breaker downhill and he'd rather just have a flop shot from the sand. And they're like, dude, I would never hit in the sand. And you're like, okay, that's, (laughs) you know, hey, they're playing a different game out there. Yeah, you got to play to your strengths, right? I mean, think about this on tour. Number one, tour players are really good at bunkers anyways, because if you if you have the technique or you know how to hit it, it's actually one of the easier shots. But one thing they have going for them out there is they know their lie is going to be absolutely perfect unless it plugs. Right. But they know the guy in front of them raked it perfectly. They know they're going to have a perfect lie. If they miss it in the rough, you don't know what kind of lie you're going to get. You know, out of a bunker, these guys can hit a chunk and run. They can hit something that's got some spin on it out of the rough. You don't have those options. You're, you, you're very limited based on what lie you have. Have you guys ever had, I mean, I know you talked about someone that won the Corn Ferry Tour. Do you, you guys have, um, you know, whether it's touring pros or, or PGA Class A pros or whatever or whatnot, do you have a lot that come through the Golf Academy? We have a, a decent number. Um, we probably have, Corey works with most of them on technique stuff. Um, we probably, he probably has six to 10 guys right now trying to play for a living. There's a, there's kind of a, a growing mindset in golf. Maybe it's a small undercurrent right now, professional golf that teachers are, are trying to do almost too much with pros. And, and I always kind of think about that. I always think it's interesting when I hear guys talk about that, because if you took the, the average amateur golfer and you showed them a pro swing, they would go, there's nothing wrong with it. It's perfect. You know, you, I wouldn't change a thing. And you show them a bunch of amateurs and they could easily say, oh, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Um, with, with the guys that come out on tour, and especially the ones that are at the top tier level and they have these touring coaches with them that follow them everywhere, do you think the coaches try to do too much with, with these pros at times? I think you can, for sure. Um you know, because you, you feel like you need to provide them something of value, right? Um, so I think you, you certainly can get in that situation. But what I at least tell myself, and I know Corey at our academy is the same way, is they didn't get to this point by not being a good golfer. You know what I mean? They've obviously figured something out that works for them up to this point. So, you know, it's more of just kind of, you know, making sure the ship doesn't get too far off course. You know, what? because there's so much information out there. Every, you guys... You know, whether you're an amateur or pro, you can go on YouTube and find whatever you want to find as far as golf swing stuff, right? Uh, there's information overload out there. And even even the best players, when they are struggling, they'll start looking up stuff, right? It's it's kind of bringing them back to the point of, hey, where were you when you played your best? What, what was your mindset like? What was your preparation like? What was your practice like? You know, what do you do when you play your best? And obviously, you've gotten away from it. What do we need to do to get you back there? And sometimes it is little tweaks in the golf swing, but... Um, it's usually not 
swing overhauls, right? I mean, like I said, they, they didn't become one of the best players in college golf because they have an inefficient golf swing. So why, why change what makes them who they are? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. I feel like a lot of times guys are almost, depending on, on their pay rate, forced to deliver feedback that may or may not be effective, where sometimes, you know, silence is golden at times. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you you guys at the Golf Academy, what what flaws me the most is it's not only the physical side of the game like we just talked about. And, you know, I know you guys use TrackMan. You've got, you know, uh, the Sim Putt Lab and Body Track and all that. I want to get into that stuff, too. But you made a, a point before, which I want to touch on, which was real important, especially to amateur golfers that are out there listening. A lot of guys can go out and shoot, you know, a, a good round, whatever that is to you, two, three over par, maybe one or two under par, maybe it's breaking 80, whatever that is, maybe it's breaking 100. And you can do that within the comfort of your friends, your normal force and that you play all the time. But you made a great point in the beginning and you said the first thing you would do is take someone out into the course and see what they do positively when they're under a little bit of pressure, when they're a little bit nervous and what they do negatively. And a lot of guys never experience that because they play with the same people day in and day out. You know, maybe it's not the same people, but it's a guy from their club that they recognize and they never play any type of semi-competitive game, tournament, anything like that. And they don't travel to other places where they're paired up with complete strangers. And the golf swing is 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 so technically oriented that, you know, you raise your heart rate 20, 30 beats per minute and you know, you could look like an octopus out there, uh, you know, when, when you're one or two handicapped. So not only is it the physical stuff you guys work on, but it's also the mental aspect because that's, you know, let's be honest. Once you've got the physical figured out, you don't need to change much, you know, once you're happy with that. But the mental aspect can really push guys over the edge. And the Golf Academy deals with that as well. So give us a little insight as to how you are not only dealing with the physical but also the mental and emotional aspects of the game. Yeah, so I, I feel like I've always done a pretty good job at this, but this whole coronavirus has really made me look at, at this aspect of it and uh, helped me become a better coach because of it. So when this all started, we didn't know in Kentucky if golf courses were going to be open or closed. And, you know, we've got these kids paying us yearly um, to help them with their golf games, get into college, you know, stuff like that. So we said, well, what can we do? What, can, what kind of value can we provide them? if we get shut down and we can't see them, you know, obviously you can do online lessons and stuff like that. But I started a uh, weekly mental mastery call uh, using zoom and we, we kind of dove into the mental game and um, it's kind of, we, we're using the book. Golf is not a game of perfect as part of it, but I'm also using some worksheets to help people understand where they are right now, where they want to be um, and really just how to control their mind and the power of the mind and using some visualization stuff. And it's been unbelievable the results that we've seen and, and i've actually done this with i've got an adult group that does it right i've had 49 people register for it and it's been incredible uh seeing you know just this is tomorrow's week four and i have had so many people shoot personal best scores right now now i get it the cups are out of the holes here right so it's easier to make putts um because if it hits the cup and stays within three feet you consider it made so yeah it's a little bit easier to make putts but we've had so many people shoot scores without changing anything in their golf swing obviously um, that they've never shot before. We have this one girl, high school girl, who's really athletic, great kid. Um, and she had never broken 80 before. And she went out 
last week, and she shot a 71. Now, I don't care if the cups are out or not. You don't go from not breaking 80 to shooting 71 without something significant changing, right? And it hasn't been swing stuff. It's been her mentality. She's she started to see how good she actually is. And as a result, she's now performing that way. And it's the same way across the board. Like I said, with adults, we've had, we've had adults go out there and you know, it's kind of like Roger, Roger Bannister breaking the four minute mile, right? Like it, these guys, once you break 80 for the first time, it's taking you years and years and years to break 80. But once you see yourself doing it for the first time, next time, next thing you know, you're doing it three, four, five, six times in the next month. Well, we're doing that, but we're doing it mentally. We're making them actually go through a round of golf in their mind and using the power of visualization to see themselves as better golfers than what they think they are currently. And as a result, the subconscious doesn't know the difference between reality and, and the visual visualization. So deep down, they think they're actually shooting these scores and then they go out and they do it. And now you're more comfortable when you're, you know, if you take that guy trying to break 80, you make the turn at 37 Normally, you get uncomfortable, and what happens? Well, you shoot 44, 45, 46 on the back nine, right? Get, getting back to where you're comfortable. But when they've done it in their mind before, and they shoot 37 on the front nine, and they go on the back nine, then they shoot 36 or 35, and all of a sudden, that 83 becomes a 72 or 71. Even though it's in their mind, they're more likely to do it in reality. So it's been super cool to watch these people transform, and just their confidence levels are through the roof, and their awareness. It's, it's unbelievable. It's like it's like pulling the lid off, you know, and then it's 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 like, you know, the, the the snakes escape from the can. I mean, it's just like an explosion. And how many times have you heard people because I know I hear it all the time. They step up to a specific hole and they go, oh, dude, I've never hit this fairway. You know, I always <laughs> blow it to the right. Well, subconsciously, like your body is going to follow what your mind tells it. So when you say. I always blow it right. The last thing your mind hears is blow it right. And and you wonder why people get into this, you know, idiosyncratic routine of, of doing the same stupid thing over and over and over again. Yeah. So, you know, what I always tell players is thoughts become emotions and then emotions become actions and then actions lead to your results. And so, yeah, if you're, if you're standing there thinking, I'm, I hate this hole, I always miss this fairway, uh, or don't hit it in the trees, right? Or don't hit it in the pond, right? Or don't hit it in the pond, left. If, if you're standing on the tee box and that's what your thought is, well, your emotions then are not obviously confidence, right? You're not excited about the shot. You're not confident in the shot. So you're actually the opposite. And then those emotions turn into your actions. Well, it's probably going to make a tight golf swing, um, not committed golf swing. And then that's going to lead to your results, which in that situation is usually not good. <laughs> So with, you mentioned before, with everything kind of being shut down or at least social distancing orders being in place in most of the country, it's kind of, it's kind of thrown a little bit of a wrench into your plans. You guys have obviously a very, very hands-on business. You're working with players daily, um, you know, manipulating them physically into certain movements, et cetera, et cetera. And, and just the communal nature of, of golf itself. And that's kind of all been disrupted. What have you guys done and, and, and how have you been able to modify kind of your business plan, if you will, to deal with everything that's going on now? So number one is um, just making sure that our students know that, you know, we're here. Golf is here still. Um, we want we're here for them to help them achieve their goals. And so whether it's just picking up the phone, making a call, shooting out a text, um, checking in on people, because, you know, some people are, are self-quarantined because, you know, they've got illnesses or maybe their spouse has an illness or they're at risk. So 
you know, they, they're, they're at home and they don't get to come out and play golf like some of our students. And so it's just reaching out, checking in on them. Um, and then, like I said, doing the, doing that virtual stuff that we've created um, our weekly calls. I'm going to do some virtual golf schools coming up where you can kind of still create that community and people can still interact with each other and learn together and grow together. So we've done stuff virtually and then in person, you know, just like I said before, we're lucky we can be outside still and golf courses are still open. So just practicing safe distancing, um, but getting people together, playing golf. When I say that, I, hopefully the governor doesn't take that the wrong way. We're not getting together and <laughs> cuddling up, right? You know, but getting on a golf course, you can have four people on a hole and not even be within, you know, 10, 20 yards of each other the entire time. So just being with people right now and, and showing people that, you know, we really do care about you and, and we do want you to to be your best version of yourself and we'll do whatever we can to help you get there. That's kind of the road we've taken through this. And, and like I said, it's, helped me become a better coach honestly it's funny you mention that because if you really suck at golf you might be a hundred yards away from your playing part (laughs) (laughs) it is awesome though that you guys still have that ability to be out and play and i people i'm sure are getting sick and tired of me saying it but i i you know i have nothing open here in in pennsylvania Uh, we're hoping at the end of the month maybe courses will get back but you know, I really feel for the people involved in golf because, especially in the Northeast, and, and we'll get into your background a little bit, you grew up in Massachusetts, correct? Yes, yeah, Northeastern yeah, so, Mass. Right, so you know the Northeast golf schedule, and this is the point in time where people are hungry and rabid and coming out of their, their winter doldrums, and all they want to do is play, and the courses can't even generate any revenue whatsoever. Um, so obviously very, very tough. Um, give people a little bit of, of your background. How did you go from Massachusetts to Kentucky? <laughs> I, I always joke and say, I put a blindfold on and threw a dart at the map. Um, <laughs> it, but no, I, I went to uh, Methodist university, which is a professional golf management school in North Carolina. So I, I, through, through the PGM program there, you do your, um, internships in the summers. And I, I spent my last two years at a place called Hamilton farm in uh gladstone new jersey yeah which was of course. an awesome I know club. well yeah, phenomenal yeah. phenomenal two golf courses one's an 18 hole par three course which is unbelievable and unbelievably hard um but yeah so i spent two years there and then that was that was my last year there was 08 which um as you know where you live 08 was a not a great place to be in the northeast when the economy kind of took a nosedive and Hamilton farm was a pretty elite club with a pretty high price tag and, and it got hit pretty hard. Um, and so did the staff. So, you know, I, I at the time was going to go down to Florida and play for the winter and then come back in the spring. And then they basically cut our staff in half. And so, um, pro up there was awesome. His name was Matt Freitag at the time. And Mike Adams was the director of instruction up there. They, they were both incredible people and, you know, they were going to do whatever they could to find me a job. And, um, turns out, one of the ladies that worked under Mike when he was at PGA national uh, running their golf schools down there, she was the girls coach at Methodist and she somehow ended up marrying some guy in Kentucky. And she called me up in the wintertime and said, Hey Colby, I heard you might be looking for a job. You want to come out to Kentucky. And at the time I was single and never been to Kentucky and said, you know, what the heck might as well go out there. So came out to Kentucky in the spring and um, it was the worst job I ever had. Um, Hated it. Spent one year there, but uh, I met my wife while I was there. So it turns out, I guess it was kind of the best job I ever had. And then um, eventually moved my way uh, to Louisville 
And so I've now been in Louisville for oh, about 10 years. And is that, that's where the course is, is located? It's in and around Louisville? Yeah, we're on the eastern edge of uh, Louisville. Okay. And that's, uh, you know, I can speak from experience. I took a big Midwest road trip with my oldest son this summer on our way back home. Well, actually, on our way back to our place in North Carolina, we kind of circumnavigated around. Um, you know, we went through Louisville. I told you we stayed on the, the Indiana side, um, right across the Ohio River there. Um, but awesome, awesome downtown, uh, very thriving. You know, we went to the Louisville Slugger Museum, you know, if you know that area, kind of yeah, around sure. there. Yeah, that's where we kind of congregated at for a bit, for a day or so. Um, you know, blew my mind. And, and not that I am naive to traveling by any means, but I, I never thought of, of Louisville as kind of, I don't know, a, a, a hip upcoming city, you know? And for sure. I, I was really, really surprised by it. What's the golf like? in that area is it is it rolling hills i mean it's it's kind of horse country you know yes yeah well it's not kind of horse country don't say kind of horse country to the people that are from here they'll they'll take offense to that uh, they think this is the horse capital of the world uh but yeah it's it's rolling hills uh, i mean the golf courses out here are beautiful we, we get the four seasons um our winters don't get nearly as bad as what you guys get up there obviously we'll get a little bit of snow uh, like this morning right now we got frost outside but Two weeks ago, it was also 80 degrees. So um, you can pretty much play 12 months out of the year here. Um, in the summers, it gets really hot and humid. But as far as golf courses are concerned, there's a lot of beautiful land out here. Um, you know, there's still some un... Well, what's the word I'm looking for? There's still some undeveloped space. So you can still see a lot of country out here, a lot of the hillsides. Uh, and then as you go further east, you kind of get into a little bit more mountain. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. O Ocala, Florida would probably argue with horse capital of the world, but I, I have no, I have no stake <laughs> in that whatsoever. So I can, you know, but, uh, we'll let them to <laughs> fight we'll it, let out. Them figure it out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so now how, how did, how did you come to use persimmon Ridge as home base for the, for the golf Academy? So, um, uh, you know, six years ago, um, Persimmon Ridge was, was sold to a new owner who's a, a PJ professional, and, and um, I knew him from the area. And so when he bought the golf course, I was an assistant at the time at another club, but I, I've always known, ever since I worked with Mike Adams, I've always known I wanted to just teach full-time. I, di I didn't want to run the day-to-day -day operations of a club. I didn't, you know, I wanted to make my own schedule. Um, but also, you know, selfishly, when I see people on the lesson tee, they're usually in a good mood. When I saw people coming in the golf shop, a lot of times I weren't in a good mood. So I wanted to see people when they were in a good mood. Um, so I've always known I wanted to teach. And, and he bought the club out here at Persimmon and um, reached out and said, you know, hey, I know that you've been looking to, to teach full time. Um, do you want to come out here and, and, and teach? And I was at another club in Louisville. It's only 20, 25 minutes away. And I said, you know what? You know, it's one of those situations where – it was time for me to jump, right? You know, if you sit on the fence long enough, you'll get splinters in your butt. And uh, I was sitting on the fence for a while. And um, so I came to a club where I knew nobody, didn't know any of the members, um, didn't have any real students following me. You know, I had a few that came, maybe six, but, you know, came to a job with no salary, uh, no students. And it was just a matter of grinding it out and figuring out what worked. And Corey Kaufman ended up being out there too. Both of us were brought on as instructors. And 
we, we hit it off right away and kind of realized that what we do really goes well together and just decided to, to put the academy together. And um, here we are now. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of seems like a match made in heaven between you two. What, what do you guys do so well that kind of connects your philosophies together? I think that we are not fearful of anybody else working with our students. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, we're very open to new ideas. Um, we, we pick each other's brains. And this goes for all of us coaches. No, none of us feel like, even if it's someone that we work with predominantly, as an individual student, we, we do a lot of stuff in groups together. None of us feel like we're ever stealing anybody from someone else. Or if, you know, if, if I'm working with someone and Corey happens to see something they're doing and comes over and says something, you know, Hey, why don't you do this work on this? Da, da, da. To me, that's, you know, that's just the benefit of us having so many coaches. You get so many more eyes and so many different ways to see things. So it, it helps the students out. So none of us are, are afraid that, you know, a student's going to leave us, you know, we feel the opposite. We feel like, you know, the rising tide rises all boats type of philosophy where because we're all there and because we all see things so differently, it helps all of our students become better because there's so many different ways to look at it. And it's funny you mentioned that because I know personally a ton of pros that have the exact opposite mindset that they're trying to poach, you know, my student and that's my revenue and I teach them my way um, so obviously by having such a communal kind of, um, symbiotic learning environment there, the only benefit is going to be to the students. And, and that's what you want in the first place. Absolutely. I mean, I've had students that I've, I've turned away. They've come out for a lesson and I'd be like, Hey, listen, I, what you're looking for isn't what I do. You know, maybe it's go work with Corey or Josh or Garrett. Maybe it's one of our other instructors. Maybe it isn't. Maybe, you know, here's a guy's name down the street that, that, you know, might be a great fit for you. So it's, it's all about helping our students become the best versions of themselves as golfers. But, um, yeah, it's, it's so many, so many teachers out there. I shouldn't say so many, there's teachers out there that feel like they've, they've got their little students and they don't want them to get information from anywhere else because they're afraid that they'll leave them when, you know, we're the opposite. We want you to, we want to give you whatever we need to give you to help you become better. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and the bottom line is if someone comes to the academy, it's, you know, the academy. It's not looking, it's not coming to a specific person. So when you have this group mindset and this group collective, it's the collective itself that's helping the student, not the individual. And I think that's when growth is exponential, when you can take your own ego and your own accolades out of it and let everybody grow together. Yeah, I mean, like, think of it. I don't know if you've ever done a golf school. But think of it, if you have, do you get more out of going to a golf school? And let's say the time frame is the same, the amount of hours, or an individual lesson. Well, you get more out of doing a school because there's so many other students there. Someone's going to ask a question that maybe you're too scared to ask, or someone's going to ask a question that maybe you never thought of, or they're going to ask it in a way that you've never thought of it. And so as a group, you learn so much more together. Uh, and that's kind of what we do you know, with all of our students. They, they all do group stuff because – we know that they learn more in groups and, and also, you know, groups on the golf course allow you to do more competition stuff, which for, for especially our middle school, high school and college players that want to play at a high level, you, you need to be competing and uh, you need to have the pressure of stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that, that's that's our philosophy is let's have everybody grow together and we'll have people play together that are completely different ability levels, but you still can learn from each other. 
Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the bottom line. And I love that idea of, you know, it's like the kid in class that raises his hand because he's the only one brave enough to. And he asks a question that 20 other kids are thinking. They just don't right. want to raise their hand. Yep. Um, hey, one of one of Louisville's biggest exports is uh, you mentioned him before, JT himself. You ever have any interaction with him down and around there? You have a swing by? So I actually, my first year in Kentucky, um, I played in a section event with his dad, Mike Thomas, who's a PGA pro here in, in um, he's in Goshen, which is just outside of Louisville. And I, I played pretty well. And then I saw Mike at the state open um, practice round later on that year. And I saw him out there. I said, Hey, Mike, um, you playing out here? He said, no, my son's out here playing. And at the time, I think he was a sophomore in high school. Um, and I said, well, I'm by myself. I didn't know who he was, right? He was a great junior player, you know, world-class junior player, but I was naive. I had no idea who he was. I just saw this scrawny little kid. Um, and I said, well, I'm playing by myself if he wants to join me today for a practice round. And on the first hole, I knew this kid was special because not because of shots that he hit that I've never seen hit before, but because we got around the first green and most high school players, when they play a practice round, they just, you know, play and keep score and move on. Right. Well, he hit a ball up to the green and his dad goes up to the green, picks the ball up, throws it to him. And Justin throws balls all around the green, starts just tossing balls around and hitting chip shots to different pin locations and putting tees in the green where he thinks they might have pins. And I'm like, this kid knows what the heck he's doing, you know? And then throughout the course of the day, I'm like, this kid's pretty good. And he ended up being low amateur that week in the Kentucky open. Um, and obviously has gone on to, to bigger and better things. But, yeah, so I, that was my first interaction with, with Justin, was watching him as a high school player. He, he really impressed me. And Mike is still very active in and around the Kentucky PGA, correct? Yeah, he is. Um, he's, he's still the head pro. I think his title is like head pro emeritus at his club. When he's in town, man, he is, he is book solid with teaching. Um, but, you know, understandably, he's – traveling as much as he can with with justin and um rightfully so watching him play and, and watching him try to achieve his goals and you know you talked about great playing you're not a slouch by any means either and i'm talking on a, on a top tier level not like a good amateur level uh you want a u.s open local qualifier tell me about that that was uh a very that was a fun day and also very stressful so uh, i played it was in um, St. Louis, which was about two and a half, three hours from where I was living at the time in Kentucky. And um, I remember I had this mantra in my head. It was uh, Jim, Jim Fan, who's a sports psychologist. I heard it from him. And it was, I have no future. I have no past. My goal is to make the present last. So I keep telling myself that throughout the course of the round because, you know, your brain can start to get ahead of yourself. Obviously, well, man, if I keep this going, I might qualify for the next round. Well, if I play good in the next stage... I might get to go. It was a congressional that year. I might to go to Congo and play in the U.S. Open. How cool would that be? So it was a matter of me keeping control of my own thoughts and staying focused on the present. But I'll tell you why it was frustrating, because I was one of the first groups out in the morning. And um, as you know, if, if there's no ties, right? If you tie, there's a playoff to get in. And there were like eight or nine spots available. I think it was a pretty big site as far as number of players. And so it was an all day, you know, there were, there was a morning wave and an afternoon wave and I was one of the first groups off and I got done and I'm nervous as heck. I shot 69, you know, I think it's good enough. You don't know if it's good enough. It's a hard golf course. So you, you, you know, you think it is, but you don't know. So I remember I went and got my oil changed 
I went to a Mexican restaurant for lunch, got a margarita, tried to calm down, went back to the golf course, sitting there scoreboard watching because, you know, you're not going to go warm up for a potential playoff for four hours. So I'm scoreboard watching, walking around the club, just trying to do whatever I can to calm myself down. And the guy coordinating it goes, dude, you're good. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, trust me, you're going to get through. You can go home. Because he knew I had a three and a half hour drive to get back home that night. Right. And and I'm like, well, I don't want to get on the road and get an hour from here and be like, get a phone call. Hey, dude, you're in a playoff in 20 minutes. You know, so it ended up I, I waited till there were like three or four groups left. So I basically everyone coming in would have need to shoot a better score than me to get me in a playoff. Uh, and I finally, finally hit the road home and I gave the guy my number and said, hey, if it even looks close, you just give me a call and I'm turning back around. But um, so I got the call afterwards and I was nervous and get the phone call. He goes, hey, by the way, you were medalist. We'll send your medal in the we'll send your medal to you in the mail. So it was pretty cool. So you go on to beat Adam Long in that he played in that by three strokes. He's a PGA Tour winner. Um, you move on to sectional qualifying. Where was that at? That was at uh, Springfield Country Club up in uh, Springfield, Ohio. Great golf course, Donald Ross course. Um, just a fantastic golf course. I, I like that place a lot. How how much different was that round compared to the local? or Or was there any difference? Well, I mean, first of all, it's 36 holes in one day. So, you know, it's going to be a long day. Um, your mindset, at least mine going in, was you just have to be patient, uh, make a lot of pars because, I, you know, you can, this place has held qualifiers for years. And so you can look at scores and it's a par 70 and usually something around, you know, six to eight under can get through. So, you know, you shoot, you shoot something in the, the 60s in round one, you know, you got a chance to get through in the second round. And I had it going. I was hitting it great, um, being very patient, wasn't making any putts, but, you know, was putting myself in good position. And then you get to a point where, you know, you've got to make something happen, right? There's no, it's not like you're just trying to make a cut or you're trying to qualify and you know about what the score is going to be. And there's a, there's a point in time when you've got to make something happen. And it was my 27th hole. I had like this 20 footer and I just got way too aggressive with it. End up three putting it. And then, you know, here's probably why I'm so into the mental side because I was so, you know, it, it cost me this day. I get to the 10 T box and I'm like, all right, well, I got to bomb this thing out there. Right. I've been hitting it. I don't hit the ball really far, um, but I hit it far enough. I was like, I had to bomb this thing out there and have a wedge in my hand. And I, I rope hooked it into the trees. And then I tried to hit, you know, this miracle shot out there by the green and end up making like a double or triple, um, which pretty much put me out of it. But, for me, the thing I was most proud of that day was I got done with the 10th hole in the second round. And I said to myself, you know what, dude, you might not get through, but do yourself a favor. Just play your game of golf and let's try to play bogey for these last eight holes. And, and I managed to do that. So that was I was able to write the ship pretty quickly um, as opposed to, you know, making that two, two bad holes turn into five or six. But um, certainly learning experience for me that maybe I need to be a little bit more patient. <laughs> Now, do you still, I know, obviously, you're heavily invested on the teaching side. You know, you've won numerous accolades in Kentucky. Do you still, uh, do you still play any type of top, you know, U.S. Open qualifying, top-level pro qualifying tournaments at all? Or is it more yeah. dedicated to the teaching side now for you? You know, I still, I love to play golf. That's why I got into the golf business was because I love to play golf. And so I play a lot with my groups as much as I can get, you know, even if it's just six, seven, eight holes at a time, getting out there and playing is, is awesome. And I've done a better job in the last 
year, year and a half of playing more because once you get in this business, man, you can easily not play golf very much and you're definitely not going to practice. And the way I used to be was I'd sign up for, you know, I do the U.S. Open qualifier every year, our section championship every year. And it's like two weeks before the event. And I'm like, all right, now I'm going to start getting ready for it. Right. Which uh, never works out very well. Uh, at that level, you can't just go two weeks. At least I'm not talented enough to just go two weeks ahead of time and, and get my game in shape. So I'm trying to keep it a little bit sharper throughout the course of the year. Um, and honestly, as a, as a coach, I feel like I need to, and I need to continue to, to practice a little bit, not nearly to the extent I used to, but continue to practice and play because it's hard to coach when you don't know what the golfer is going through. And at any level, I don't care who you are, but you go through similar emotions. You're just doing it at a different, different altitude. Right. And so as someone to be able to play in a tournament and be like, Hey dude, listen, I've, I've been in your shoes. I've played in a tournament that I thought I wasn't ready for, or I've, I've played a great front nine or a first round and, and tanked it on the second round, or I've played a bad front nine and then really come back well on the back nine. And here's, here's how I did it. And here's how I learned from it. So I feel like it's really important to play and to compete just, just, to continue growing as a coach. Yeah, I mean, it makes it makes perfect sense because when you can put yourself in your player's shoes, I think it lends so much legitimacy to the words and adds so much weight to them when you're delivering that content to your students. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, I, my, my game is built around a pretty good short game and good course management. So especially with some of these high school kids that hit the ball better than me, and some of them further than me, when we go out and we play and I beat them and then we come back in and they, they're sitting on the range working on their golf swing. And I'm like, dude, you hit more greens than I did. You hit it further than I do off the tee. Why are you working on your golf swing? That's obviously not what's holding you back. So it, it like you said, it brings legitimacy and to the, um, to the equation for them to help them understand, you know what? Maybe he's right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's so true. Uh, hey, last thing I want to talk about is a little bit of the technology that you use there. You know, golf instruction and golf coaching, if you will, has kind of gone and geared itself towards using so much tech. Uh, before that, though, I want to get your your opinion on it. Do, do you feel like nowadays there are teachers that rely too much on technology? I, you know, I never want to say someone does something incorrect in their business, but I, I know that I used to use technology more than I needed to, you know, I probably tried to show students that I know, like, here's, here's all this information I know about path and angle of attack and club face and all this stuff. And I really want to show you how smart I am, right? When in reality, um, that doesn't help a student out. So technology is awesome when used appropriately. Um, the main thing I use is TrackMan. And I use it a lot, especially in the off season. Our academy building is on the back of the range. So we have garage doors that open up and we can close them and hit into a net. And so I do it a lot in the off season uh, when you are trying to maybe change some numbers or definitely to figure out distance control, especially with wedges. I do a lot of wedge distance control stuff. Um, so I use TrackMan mainly for that and also to play virtual golf on. Um, but I know some people are like Corey, who I work with, is really good with the numbers and really good with body track. And, and kind of mapping pressure and, and helping students with that stuff. So for me, I've just, I've learned what I'm good at. And even more importantly, probably learned what I don't enjoy teaching and things that I'm not good at. And instead of, instead of trying to be everything to everybody, I just 
more focused now on what I'm really good at and use the other coaches at our academy for, for the weaknesses that I have. And trust me, they'll tell you that I've got plenty of them. I think it's just like through this entire chat, it's, it's become so apparent that you have literally zero ego when it comes to students improving. And I hope the junior golfers and the people that are looking for lessons out there that are going to listen to this, I hope they hear this and understand that you don't have to go to a person that tells you, you know, I'm the best, I'm the best, I'm the best. Let me show it, let me show it, let me show it, because they're not paying attention to you. And I think, you know, Colby, what you're doing with Corey out there and all the other teachers is is literally just saying, look, I'm I'm good at this. And if you have a question that maybe I don't really know the answer to or or I'm not great at, well, I'm gonna find the answer and I'm gonna find you someone within our academy that's great at it. So you can work on that. And I think being devoid of ego is just, it's such a lost trait amongst teachers nowadays. And, and you know, unfortunately, I know so many that will talk my ear off and tell me, oh, dude, like, that's 100% wrong. Let me tell you why and show you these numbers that I'm right. And there's so many conflicting ideas out there. And I just, you know, honestly, what you are telling me and, and telling the audience that's going to listen to this is is the fact that not everyone's perfect. Not everyone's going to have the same exact golf swing, but whatever you do, we're going to work our butts off to find a way to make you better. Absolutely. Yeah. You got to golf is so individualized and you, you've got to figure out what makes you, you, what, you know, what are the things that make you your best? And then Let's really accentuate those and then let's figure out where you struggle and let's try and cover those up as much as we can. You know, you, there's no there's no golfer that's been really good at absolutely everything. Right. So Tiger, Tiger's probably in my mind, Tiger's the best player that's ever played. Never been a good driver of the golf ball. But he's the best player that's ever played. So you don't have to excel at everything. But what Tiger does, you know, think of that British Open when he hit what, one driver all week. What he did was he managed his golf game. He knew he was a very good iron player. He knew he had a good short game and a great, great head on his shoulder. So as long as he doesn't hit it in the pot bunker and keeps it in play off the tee, he was going to compete that week. So you've got to learn what works for you. Where are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And, and it's so individual that I just I've never been one to have a method or a, a, a swing idea that I feel like everyone has to fall into. And I probably do less with the technique of the golf swing than most instructors out there. Um, one because I don't spend enough time learning enough about the biomechanics of it to give you the right answer. But number two, I know I can help you shoot lower scores by not even touching your golf swing most of the time. Yeah. I, I hope people can get that out of this interview is, is get rid of your ego. You know, you don't have to hit driver on every par four, every par five. You know, if someone has a wedge into a hole, it's okay for you to hit an easy nine iron. You Tiger hit like 71 two irons, or that's a lie. I mean, because obviously it's par threes, but you know, hit hit 63 two irons and 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 one driver, you know, and and won a British Open. I mean, or an Open Championship. I mean, it's 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 insane. And that's the thing. Like people step up on a tee box and say, "What are you hitting? I'm hitting seven. What are you hitting? Oh, I'm not going to tell them I'm hitting six. Yeah, I'll grab a seven too. And like you know, you can't. You know, one out of every hundred shots is going to get there if you swing, you know, a thousand miles per hour and hit it perfect. And you're not going to like let go of the ego and just play your game. Yeah, it looks a lot better. Uh, it's more important to get done with a round and have a number lower than the guy you're playing with as opposed to an iron that they're hitting. You know, being able to hit it as far as they can, that's for sure.
Yeah, dude, look, I, I play four hybrids. I go four, five, six, seven hybrid. People are like, you have a seven hybrid? Hell yeah, I have a seven hybrid. You know what? I'm going to stick it inside your eight iron too. So it's it's irrelevant, you know? <laughs> exactly right. Like that's the confidence I have with it. And, and I could care less what the club is. I know it works for me. I've been fit for it. Like it fits my swing perfect. Um, just Just go out and play. Have fun, you know? Enjoy it. Uh, Colby, listen, let people know where they can get in touch with you. Where can we find out more about the golf Academy? Where can we find out more about you on social media, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. So our website is, uh, the golf Academy PR like persimmonridge.com. Um, and then we're all over Facebook, Instagram with, with the same. Um, and honestly, I, I'd love to give your listeners, uh, anyone that wants, I've got a three-step guide to breaking 80, which is, you know, is, you probably can tell by talking from me, I'm not the smartest guy. So it's a very simplified guide to what you need to do to shoot lower, lower scores. So whether you're trying to break a hundred or 90 or 80 or even 70, uh, if your listeners want it, uh, just have them shoot me an email at Colby at the golf Academy PR.com. And I'll, I'll send that out to them. Um, love to help them out. And if they're ever interested in doing some virtual golf schools, um, I'm, I've got a couple coming up in May. I've got a junior champions golf school, May 9th, and I've got an adult golf school where we're going to spend two mornings, uh, doing some stuff on zoom, uh, May 4th and 5th. So anyone that wants to do some virtual learning with me, uh, shoot me an email at that same place, Colby at the golf Academy, PR.com. Or if you're ever in Louisville, want to come out and see our Academy, uh, look us up on our website and love to have you out. All right, people don't, don't fret. Don't try to rewind this to get that. I'll put it in the liner notes, put it up on Instagram everywhere that you follow us. So when the episode drops, you'll have access to that information as well colby's email um obviously i'll tag you in all the stuff so people can reach out to you that way colby it's it's been an absolute pleasure my man and and honestly if i ever get back to you know what i consider the midwest not the south of kentucky <laughs> um dude i will be swinging by to, to pay you guys a visit sounds like just an unbelievable place to to hang out and work on your game awesome dan thanks so much for having me and, and love what you're doing here with your podcast and um hopefully your listeners appreciate it as much as i do I appreciate it, buddy. All right, people, so either get busy golfing or get busy dying.